Um, over a year ago when uh, Judy and I were somewhat appointed to take on the responsibility of being chairman of this uh, conference, um, we immediately thought of asking Winnie to be our speaker and she graciously accepted, fortunately for us. And uh, this wonderful lady will be sharing with you her story by filtering through to us, hopefully, some of her Al Anon wisdom. And she has a fabulous gift of humor. And for those of you who haven't heard her, you are in for a real treat. And here we have Winnie. <laughs> She's right. <laughs> you didn't really look like that many when I was sitting down, and I wasn't the least bit nervous while she was up here, but uh, she's right. My name is Winnie. I'm the wife of an alcoholic, a member of Al-Anon, and I am not always grateful for either one. <laughs> I used to wait until you said, hi, Winnie, but you're so unreliable, I just keep on going. I... <laughs> oh, it's fun, though, you know. I I, uh, I really don't have any right to be nervous, because when I was new in Al-Anon, I, I used to hear this one fellow in AA always say he never opened his mouth unless he was on his feet, because if he said something that somebody didn't like, he had a head start. <laughs> And I've been watching how those tables are set up, and you really have a handicap. I... <laughs> Anyhow, I would like, before I start sharing experience, strength, and hope, thank the committee for inviting me to be a part of this. I uh, I spoke at a at the IDAA luncheon in 1976, and uh, I was almost as nervous then as I am now. But you learn something from every experience, and that experience taught me that I really don't need an EKG, because if I could survive this, I can survive anything. <laughs> but uh, I am very grateful to be asked to share experience, strength, and hope, because for so many years, I spent time trying to be what I thought you wanted me to be. And as I have told several people, and this is a little bit ahead of the story, I really didn't realize that I had begun to grow in Al-Anon until I was at a meeting one night up in Glendora. And at the coffee break, one of the gals leaned over to me and she said, you know, there's a doctor's wife in this group. And I said, you're kidding. <laughs> and she said, no, it's true. And I watched them for the rest of the meeting to find out who it was, and it was me. <laughs> And you know, when you can be someplace and you can be yourself, it's the most important thing in the world. For the benefit of some of the newcomers that I welcome, I, I want you to know from the very beginning, I don't happen to be an authority on Alamon. I haven't got the slightest idea how it works, and I'm glad. Because if I knew how it worked, I'd change it. <laughs> that uh, happens to be my pattern. I figure things out, and then I take care of them. I... Um, <laughs> I didn't come to Al-Anon for any of the good reasons. I didn't come because I wanted it, needed it, or even because I thought it could help me. I didn't know there was anything wrong with me. I came because I happened to be married to a nut. <laughs> and uh, he decided to go into the hospital and do something about his drinking, despite the help I had been giving him. <laughs> and... Uh, 
one of the conditions was that he attend AA meetings. Now, it was at an AA meeting that he heard of Al-Anon. And it has always been a mystery to me why, while everybody else was making moccasins, he, t- <laughs> he took the time to sit down and write a letter to the Al-Anon central office in Los Angeles and tell those complete strangers that there was something wrong with me. <laughs> And uh, when I got here, I didn't stay for the good reasons either. I didn't stay because I liked it. I didn't like it. And I didn't like it to the point that I tried to join Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) I took their 20 questions test, and I flunked it. So I went to the guy that I thought was the big shot in our particular area. He he was the one that always got the chair with the seat in it. Because contrary to the way meeting rooms and Alano clubs are furnished today, when I came into Al-Anon, they used to furnish them with rejects from the goodwill. And if you didn't hit your bottom before you got there, you did shortly thereafter. Because uh, none of the darn things had any springs in them. But uh, I went to this one guy that always seemed to get the chair that held up. It looked like a throne, to be absolutely honest with you, and I figured he must be at least a supervisor. So I went to him one day, and I confessed. I said, I um, I think I'm an alcoholic. And he said, what makes you think so? And I said, well, I, um, I flunked your test. Oh, well, he said, if you flunked the test, chances are you are an alcoholic. When did you have your last drink? Well, I... I I said, I think it was about three years ago. <laughs> and he said, lady, if you got to think about it, and it's been three years ago, go back over with those women and let them help you. <laughs> now, I don't know what shape you were in when you got to this way of life, but I want you to know that in my condition, being rejected by Alcoholics Anonymous didn't do a lot for me. <laughs> and uh, so I... Uh, I went back over with those women, I think probably because I wanted to get them to help me get even with them. See, that was sort of my way of life. I was always recruiting these people to help me get even with those people. And it wasn't long before these people became those people. It just worked out that way. But uh, I stayed for another reason, too. There happened to be one female in that group that was the nastiest woman I have ever come in contact with. And I decided to outsit her. Now, uh, it really wasn't so much what she said to me, because she never really said anything. But she'd look at me, and she'd go, (laughs) and I didn't know what that meant. And uh, she knitted, which almost drove me up a wall, because I don't knit. And when you're perfect and you don't knit, you're in big trouble, you know, and... uh, And I didn't even begin to believe I was sick, which is one of the first things they told me, until I began to like her. And then I went immediately to my sponsor, and I confessed. I said, I I think I'm beginning to like her. And my sponsor had one answer for every situation. It's all right. I could have told her I shot my husband, and she'd say, it's all right. And I said, well, it really isn't. And she wanted to know why, so I told her. I said, I have never changed my mind about anyone. And that was the truth. You see, I put people in categories, those you encouraged, those you tolerated, and those you ignored. 
And once I had you placed, you had to stay there because I didn't know how to shuffle you around. And I realized today that I probably deprived myself of a lot of very meaningful relationships because of my inability to allow people to be whatever they want to be. Now, there are, I know, some alcoholics in the group today, so if you don't mind, I want to give them their message first. Uh, well, you know how they are, and uh, truth of the matter is, I'm not even sure I got a message for them, but uh, I talked out in Fontana one night, which wasn't one of my better days, and so it kind of surprised me when this woman came up to me after the meeting, and she said, where are you going to be the next time? And I said, well, I'm not really sure. Why? Uh, she said, I would so much love to have my husband hear you. So I figured I had to have said something profound, even though I couldn't remember what it was. So I decided to ask her in case I needed it. And I said, do you think I could help your husband? Well, she said, not really. <laughs> but after he hears you, he's going to be glad he got me. <laughs> That may be the only message you get, but uh, it works in Alateen, too, Al. I've, I've sent a lot of kids home very grateful. I, uh, I only have one story. I don't apologize for it. There isn't a way in the world I can change what I used to be like. But what I can do today, thanks to places like this and people like you, is use those so-called unhappinesses of the past as a stepping stone into a better way to live today. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to share a little experience, strength, and hope and tell you some of what I used to be like, what happened. And in my particular case, I let you guess, because uh, there's people in Al Anon still don't think I'm going to make it, <laughs> which is okay. See, that's one of the things I learned. Uh, it really doesn't bother me how much they worry about me until I begin to worry about them worrying about me. That's when I get into all the trouble. I grew up in a family where there was a drinking problem, at least I thought there was, and I used to call my father an alcoholic. I don't know whether he was an alcoholic or not. He didn't think he was. He thought he was a social drinker. He lived a social drinker and he died a social drinker, but he liked it. And when I wasn't helping him, he liked me too. But when I came to Al-Anon, I could spot an alcoholic two miles away. Anybody that was going into a bar, coming out of a bar, standing in front of a liquor store, or just looking strange, <laughs> to me was an alcoholic, see, because that's what I was accustomed to, strange people. And I never really knew where they came from, but they always ended up next door to me. I was always surrounded by weirdos. Now, in growing up, it wasn't what my father did that bothered me. It's what my father wouldn't do that bothered me. You see, I was... Well, when you when you start figuring out what people are, you know, you have to do a little bit of footwork. I used to uh, to research fathers because I happen to be a, a natural born researcher, and it does take some footwork because you got to cover the neighborhood and you got to watch the fathers. And then I would come home and look at mine, and he never did any of the things he was supposed to do. And I made some suggestions, but I was raised in a hard-headed Irish family, and for some reason or other, my father just wouldn't take direction from a four-, or five-, six-year-old, whatever happened to be at the time. So right then, I set a pattern to my life that lasted until I got to Al-Anon. I ignored him. And believe me, ignoring him made my life more miserable than all his drinking could have done if he'd have been drinking at me. 
because when I was away at school, I could be honest about my mother, my brothers, and my sister, but never my father. Always described him the way he was supposed to be. You know, sort of a composite picture of all the good things that a father ought to be. And it made my life difficult because it meant nobody could go home with me. See, if they did, they were going to find out one of two things right now. The man who was living with my mother was not my father. <laughs> or that I was the biggest liar that ever came down the pike. Now, I never considered myself a liar. I looked upon myself as a diplomat. <laughs> because I didn't lie. I just didn't tell the truth. And I thought there was a difference. You see, I learned at a very early age that people anticipate what you're going to say. So you lead them up to a certain point and stop. They guess what you would have said if you'd have gone on. But they're very poor guessers. However, I never felt I should be held responsible for their inadequacies. And I have trouble with that sometimes today, too, because uh, since my husband has been sober and taken an interest in my welfare, which is just a nice way of saying he don't tell me to drop dead as often as he used to. But if I'm going someplace that's quite a ways away, he usually volunteers to go with me. Now this, at least for me, is a test of serenity. Because I happen to be married to the original, don't know where he's going when he leaves, he don't know where he is when he gets there, and usually he don't know where he's been when he gets back. But uh, if he goes with me, he directs me every step of the way, you know. But we're, because we're at opposite ends of the pole when it comes to being anything alike. See, I'm married to a thinker. Sometimes he thinks two, three weeks before he answers you, you know, which really isn't as bad as it sounds. It's a marvelous memory course because you have to keep in mind everything you've been talking about because when he comes up with the answer, he never connects it to anything. He just says, yes, you know. Um, I'll, I'll give you a better example. Since he's given up drinking, he's taken up dusting. And that's almost as bad as drinking. Uh, anyhow, we were playing golf one day, and I happened to look over, and he's just dusting the golf cart like it's going out of style. And I thought it was kind of ridiculous. So when I got back in the cart, I merely said to him, when you die, I'm going to bury you in a plastic bag. And he didn't say anything, so I didn't say anything. But about two weeks later, we were having a nice, what I thought was a friendly cup of coffee. And all of a sudden, he said, I don't think that was very nice. <laughs> I guess he thought it over and he didn't like the bag idea. I, I, I don't really know, but that's the way he is, and I'm getting used to it. But on the other hand, you know, I'm one of those people that reacts immediately. You know, I try to get it done before I really know what you want me to do. And if you put two people like that in one automobile, you got a problem. See, because if we're driving down the freeway and he says, turn right, I turn right now. And he usually says, not here. I'm about 60 miles too soon. So uh, on this uh, particular night, I had been asked to come down to Chula Vista. You know, and I was having a moment of growth or whatever you want to call it. I, I just, I knew I wasn't well enough to go that far with him without running over him. But I, I didn't want to tell him I didn't want him to go. See, he gets hurt very easily. And, uh, 
and then he mopes around, and, and I make all these amends, and I don't even know what I've done, and I, I just didn't want to get involved in all that stuff. So I just said to him, I'm going to a meeting, and he said, okay, so I left. But that night, I didn't get home at 10.30 or a quarter of 11. It was closer to a quarter of one. And when I walked through the door, there he stood, in my spot. <laughs> With that age-old question, where the hell have you been? Yeah. And without even thinking, I said, well, how far do you think it is to Chula Vista? Now, he accused me of lying to him. I didn't lie to him. I didn't tell him I wasn't going to Chula Vista. And if he had said, Winnie, are you going to Chula Vista? I was going to say yes. Are you getting the picture? If you were bright enough to ask the right question, you got the whole story. And if you weren't, you got stuck with what you thought. And um, I might add, that gets you into a little trouble, too. Anyhow, I don't really know what happened to the man that I met, fell in love with, and permitted to marry me. But as soon as he was mine, I decided to help him. I, uh, I wanted to help him become what I knew he wanted to be for my sake. Now, I'm not well enough yet to define that for you, but I will tell you something that I didn't tell him, and that is that my help is deadly. Would you believe I had friends who wouldn't even tell me they were in trouble for fear I'd help them? Because, you know, I have that knack. But, of course, Eddie and I ceased to be friends. When we got married, we became competitors. He spent his life trying to outwit me, and I spent my life trying to outwit him. And the upshot of the whole thing is he, we ended up a couple of halfwits. But uh, he was in the Navy. He was a professional man. He was a full lieutenant, and I didn't go into this blindly because, as I told you in the beginning, I'm, I'm sort of a researcher by nature, and uh, which reminds me, I've been sitting up there on my balcony, you know, watching the ships, the Navy ships, as they left the harbor, and I just couldn't help but think, but by the grace of God, all of those could have been mine. <laughs> Anyhow, I, uh, I did a little research on the Navy. Eddie was a full lieutenant, and I happened to notice, because I came across the table of operations, that there was only a couple of lines between what he was and what I decided to help him become, which was Admiral. Um, I knew they only had one Admiral in the Dental Corps, but I only had one man in mind for the job. It didn't look as difficult as it turned out to be, but had I been halfway bright, I would have joined the Navy myself, because I showed up every day. He only showed up when the spirit moved him, and... Uh, I would have made a marvelous shore patrolman. I have a little bit of bird dog in me, and when I would show up and find out he hadn't shown up, you know, I'd just put my nose to the ground and away I'd go, and sooner or later I would always find him, but by then he was usually in no shape for me to let anybody else find him, so that's when I used to hide him. Um, we played hide-and-seek for years. He didn't even know there was a game going on, though, but... Uh, after he came to Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, I felt I, I really felt I should help him with the program because I just wasn't sure he was bright enough to get what they said they wanted to give him. So I went to every meeting and I had a little notebook and I would jot down a few of the pertinent things that applied to his peculiar case. And then I would sort of spoon feed it to him. Well, you know, if they, if they had an, another examination, I wanted the dummy to be able to pass. And uh, I heard two things at those meetings that, believe me, are worse than drinking. Would you believe that? There are a lot of things that are worse than drinking. Sobriety, for instance. 
Now, I can only speak for myself, but it was always easier for me to watch Eddie throw up than grow up. It just worked out that way. I don't, I don't really know why, but one of the things I heard was sleep teaching. I, um, I got myself a big AA book, and every night, just as he dozed off, I would open it to chapter 5, and I would read to him how it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Beautiful reading. I, I, I memorized the whole fifth chapter, and dummy slept through the whole damn thing, and uh, I still think it's the reason. When we go to an AA meeting outside our own area, where when you walk in, people don't really know which one's which, it is always me they come up to. They say, keep coming back, honey, because it'll work, you know. I think I'm the drunk. But anyhow, the other thing I heard was you can't get drunk if you're grateful. Now, right after I got to Al-Anon, they took away from me a few of my finer phrases, such as, you had better not be drunk tonight. If I smell liquor on your breath, your clothes will be on the porch. My neighbors thought I was some kind of a fresh air nut. You know, I put them out every night, brought them in every morning, but they wouldn't let me say that. So I had to find some way to get the message across, and probably without even realizing it. I think I started one of the first gratitude lists for him. I um, I jotted down a few of the things he should be grateful for, starting with myself, of course. And um, while I was doing that, I had to remember this game of hide-and-seek. So I explained to him one day, because I'm a great explainer. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I was never able to say yes or no. I had to give you a detailed explanation. Sometimes even change my mind in the middle. But uh, And I'm not much better than that now. The example I usually use is my watch. You know, I always wanted a watch with a little teeny-weeny tiny face. Something that... Um, well, something that would kind of reflect my personality, you know, and uh, as soon as my eyes got dead, Eddie bought me one. <laughs> well, his timing is perfect, and uh, and I complained about it so much that he got me another one, a big one, you know, and uh, in my enthusiasm, I pulled the stem out of it. Well, Lord, I didn't want him to think I was abusing his gifts, so I fixed it myself, which is an advantage. You know, most of us Alanons can fix anything, and it worked very well for quite a while, but I happened to be up in Kanab, Utah, and some poor unsuspecting Utah, noticing I had a watch, asked me what time it was. Well, I had to tell him about the watch with a little teeny-weeny face and the bad eyes and pulling out the stem and fixing it myself. I have to keep it wound because it gains five minutes every 24 hours, and I've had it for three years. Now, there's an hour's difference between Los Angeles and Kanab, and I finally figured it out, and I looked up, and the man was gone. You know? And the thing that truly upset me the most was I felt like 007 standing on a corner talking to my watch, you know, because I was so engrossed that I didn't even see the man leave. Well... That's pretty much the way I am, but Eddie, of course, was a hostage, so I did explain to him one day that when he drank excessively, it had been necessary for me on occasion to hide him, and I had put him in some rather out-of-the-way places, but I'd never lost him, so be grateful, you know, and I, I did put him in some strange places. The one I always tell about happened right up here at the Long Beach Naval Station, and I tell it primarily because it points out a lot of things about me. They used to have a mock submarine just inside the sentry gate, and one morning I came across Lloyd John in front of that mock submarine with his six-pack of beer at the exact moment that I spotted his commanding officer coming from the opposite direction. 
Now, I had just told that man one of my better stories, which meant I had to get rid of him. I mean, you can understand. He was living proof I hadn't told the whole story. But you do have to know one small detail, and that is that when I came to Al-Anon, I had one of the greatest pitching arms in the world. I could throw a full six-pack of beer farther than he had strength enough to retrieve it. <laughs> so if I was around and he had a six-pack of beer, you know, he'd hold it like I was going to take it away from him. Well, getting him in that sub is not as hard as it sounds. I just helped him up and he fell down. He didn't know where he was going. But getting him out, that is a whole other story. You see, he didn't trust me, so he wouldn't hand me the beer. And I have many times since wondered what that sentry must have thought of that female, half in, half out of the conning tower, that darn submarine, finally coming up with this lieutenant commander holding his beer in his hat. He thought he'd been torpedoed, you know, right in the middle of Long Beach. And I, and I used to worry about that sentry, you know, because I, uh, I used to go on that base like I owned it in my house coat and my curlers. I, um... <laughs> I don't really believe that the alcoholic appreciates what we give up in order to help them. You know, in my particular case, it was dressing. I, uh, I did, did have a choice. I could always go to bed in whatever I was going to wear the next day, but uh, I just don't know. I, I uh, you know, I don't think you have that comfortable feeling you have with one of them old housecoats. Uh, mine was a chenille number, and it uh, it sort of had double duty. You know, I used to pluck it while I planned if somebody made me mad. Uh, a couple of years ago, a little gal friend of mine in Al-Anon gave me a chenille purse, uh, and it had a note on it, and it said, Dear Winnie, I found the pockets to your house coat. <laughs> and... Uh, I happened to be down in Kentucky, and one of the gals looked at it, and she said, oh, isn't that marvelous? She said, I'll bet you just unscrew these little things and take the handle off and throw it in the washing machine. It comes out like new. I said, you know, you're right. And if I'd have known that a few years ago, I'd have washed that house coat, too. It is, you know, it's just one of those things. But anyhow, I guess you know how I felt when Eddie came home and announced he had resigned from the Navy. I was like somebody that had lost a business. Because I had started to wonder about him. That part of it's true, but I never blamed the drinking. I didn't want my husband to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and quit drinking. I wanted him to learn to mind. <laughs> See, I never objected to him taking a drink. Sometimes I allowed him to. And, and there were times when three were called for. But there was something strange about him. I just didn't understand it. It seemed like one drink and he was set in cement. I couldn't do anything with him. And I don't know how many times I said to him, when we are invited to a cocktail party on Friday, we can come home on Friday. We don't have to stay till Monday, you know. And I think part of my confusion stemmed from the fact that I like those, uh, that nice easy, show, nice, easy social life in the service. I didn't even mind making a fool out of myself. Occasionally, he was making a career out of it. And the strange part is that as his drinking increased, mine decreased. It became more important for me to know where he was, who he was with, where they were going, how they were going to get there. Or what was he thinking? Have you ever tried to read somebody's mind through their eyeballs when their lids are at half-mast? It's not easy. And I, I think 
probably, uh, well, when I first got to the program, you know, or to this way of life, uh, Eddie was in the hospital, and my sponsor took me to a lot of AA meetings, as well as a lot of Al-Anon meetings. And at all these AA meetings, you know, they'd say, it's the first drink, and I'd say, no, it isn't. But I couldn't remember whether it was the second or the third or the fourth. See, I wasn't trying to figure out what alcohol did to him. I was trying to figure out where I lost control. And I got so bad about it that my sponsor one day said to me, Winnie, don't help him. Let him suffer. I didn't like him anyhow, so I quit helping him. And then as God has a way of doing in my life, I finally ended up at an AA meeting one night. And it was quite a while after I got to Al-Anon, too. And the man that evening spoke almost entirely on the first drink. And later on, we ran into him in the coffee shop, which is to say we got into the same coffee shop, and I spotted him. And uh, I said to Eddie, I think I'll just run over there and tell that man that if he intends to speak at a public level, he should be more factual. Now, I always like to give the devil his due. Uh, my husband has never deprived me of making as big a jackass out of myself as I want to. <laughs> And he sat very quietly while I traipsed across the coffee shop, sat down with this complete stranger, and picked his talk apart. Happened to be a railroad man from Texas. And I think a kind of startling, because he had kind of a glazed look in his eye. But um, he finally got his voice back, and he just sort of stared at me for almost a full minute. And finally he says, well, honey, let me put it to you this way. When you get killed by a train, it wants the caboose that did it. <laughs> And I haven't had any trouble with the first drink since. You know, because I see a train go by, and I know if the caboose shows up, it's too late. But uh, I was a long way from Al-Anon at that point. I still thought a good wife was responsible for making something out of whatever she happened to get stuck with. So I began to wonder, what am I going to do with him? You know, and while I was thinking about it, I, I happened to remember his mother. Uh, now, I, I didn't like his mother. I didn't have any reason not to like her. Uh, in fact... My not liking her is no big deal. You know, there were lots of people I didn't like. Whole towns that I didn't like. You know, when I first got to Al-Anon, I lived out uh, past El Monte, and in order to get to Los Angeles from where I lived, you had to go through El Monte or Long Beach. You did have a choice. And I used to go through Long Beach until one day my sponsor said to me, Winnie, do you like to drive? And I said, not particularly. Why? And she said, well, if you don't, I think you better forgive El Monte. Because, you see, I used to leave home, go through Long Beach to get to Los Angeles, which added about 20 miles to my trip, just because I was mad at El Monte. So getting even, I learned it a long time ago, didn't really pay. But uh, So I say that because my not liking Eddie's mother was no big deal. But she did have one peculiarity. She didn't believe in drinking anything but water, so I figured it had to be the problem. You see, Eddie wasn't raised in a social drinking family such as mine. Therefore, the poor thing probably just doesn't know how to drink, so I decided to teach him. Have you ever tried to teach a drunk how to drink? Well, you got one big problem. you got to get him sober enough to find out if he's learning anything that you're teaching him. So I decided to get him out of California, and that decision lasted till I got to Gallup, New Mexico. Now, I spent three miserable days in that godforsaken place because I made one tiny mistake. I stopped. And he got into a bar that I was afraid to follow him into, because from where I was sitting, he and a tribe of Indians went in. And uh, I know what Indians and firewater do when they get together, and I wasn't going to let them get me, and I didn't care if they got him. So I sat outside and waited. 
never dawned on me there was a back door. He went in the front door, out the back door. Wherever he wanted to go, in the back door, out the front door. And there's old Faithful spouting right where he'd left her. And I, I always like to mention that there was a little Indian gal standing in front of that, that place. And, and I mention her because I think she is my first contact with that very special something that I, I think I have found in Al-Anon. In AA, they call it the unspoken language. But in Al-Anon, at least for me, I think it's the language of the heart. Because, you see, this is the only place in my life I have ever been where I can feel what somebody else is saying. Or I can watch someone walk through that door for the first time. I don't have to know who they are, where they came from, what their husband does, what kind of a car they drive. I I don't have to have statistics. I just look in their eyes. And when I see in their eyes that same, there ain't nobody home here look that I've seen in my eyes. I know where they've been. A little gal that was visiting down here from Canada one time from Montreal uh, probably put it into words better than I have ever been able to when she was explaining how they handle their meetings up there. And she said, you know, in my area, we have greeters. And she said, would you believe that when I went to my first Al-Anon meeting and the girl put her hand out and said, my name is Julie, she said, I was so upset that I couldn't tell her who I was. All I could say to her was, I've been to hell and back. And she said, you know, that girl never even hesitated. She just smiled sweetly and said, well, isn't it strange then that we've never met before? (laughs) Because that's the way it is. See, whether I like to admit it or not, I paved that road to hell with my fears and my suspicions and my ambition and my egomania. But I didn't know until I got to Al-Anon who the Master Mason really was. But sitting there in Gallup, New Mexico, I was a long way from that way of thinking. I looked at that little Indian that first morning, and I was so embarrassed that she would allow herself to be degraded by standing in front of that place. Now, I am across the street making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for five children, and she looks strange to me. But the second day, she looked pretty good. Third day, I kind of hide her, you know, because... She had her side of the street and I had mine. And while I was there, I had to make one of my many decisions, and I decided I would never again stop where the human race could contaminate my husband. Now, if you are driving across country in an automobile and you don't intend to stop, you have to make adjustments. And some darn fool told me that Texas had dry counties. That's the adjustment I made. I mapped out a course so that I never stopped unless I was in a dry county which didn't help a lot. He got just as drunk in a dry one as he would have in a wet one. But when you're going crazy on a slow, easy plan, this will help. You can spend hours wondering, where did he get it? I don't know where they get it, but I'll tell you something I do know. If I'd have walled him up, he'd have come out drunk. I don't know where they get it, you know. But my kids think Texas is the biggest place on earth. Took us almost two weeks to get through it. And it was kind of an unwritten law, you know, as far as they were concerned. If she stops and you got anything to do, get out, get it done, and get back, she'll never miss you. And that's pretty much the way it was. See, I concentrated on that seat. And if it was full, we went. If it was empty, we waited. See how simple it is? Of course, God alone knows how much travel time we lost when he got in the back by mistake. See, I never looked back there because that's not where he's supposed to be. And I could depend on those kids. They wouldn't have said anything because one of their favorite sayings was, don't upset her. 
but you used to upset me. <laughs> now, I'm only offering my opinion today, and in my opinion, my kids did not react to the alcoholic. My kids reacted to my reaction to the alcoholic. Because it's true, Eddie came home drunk lots of times. And he did very strange things. But they knew he was drunk. They knew he was strange. How do you explain me? I'm running the group. And I don't know where I am half the time. You know, I have one kid. I, my number two son, I could not keep that kid in school. Take him to school, he was usually waiting for me when I got home. And... Uh, after he got to go to Alateen and I got to go to Alamon and we got to where we could talk as people instead of God and the little child, which is the way it had been. And I asked him one time, I said, Billy, why wouldn't you go to school? Didn't you like school? Oh, yeah, Mom. He says, I really did. But I was afraid you'd move while I was gone. <laughs> See? And that could be a real fear for a little kid. I didn't know for a long, long time that my kids had formulas for me. You know, if she puts her shoes on, she's going out, and if she gets dressed, we're moving. You know? <laughs> I kind of eliminated some of the concern in their lives. But uh, anyhow, I finally got to, to uh, Kansas. Now, I picked Kansas very carefully because I happen to be a native born Missouri and raised on the propaganda that Kansas is a dry state, which it's not because everything they drink in Missouri, they haul over from Kansas. But anyhow, we were there less time than anywhere else until Eddie found a bar within walking distance because naturally, I took the car away from him just like you would any other 10-year-old child you're taking care of. And so every day he'd walk down to this place. Kind of tickled me, too, after he got sober. He told me he had to pass a Catholic church on this jaunt. Now, I happen to be Catholic, but he's not. In fact, for years, I, I thought I was doing penance for marrying that Methodist, but that's a whole other story. Anyhow, he took the time one day to go into that church, light a candle, and say a prayer for me. And then he noticed a sign that said the candle cost a quarter. He didn't want to spend a quarter, so he blew it out. <laughs> And I've never had nerve enough to ask him, was he praying for me or against me, you know, because that's about the time the fun started. Now, here again, and it's still only my opinion, but I believe the non-alcoholic is by far sicker than the alcoholic. Because you take a drunk to a meeting and maybe you don't get him dry or sober, but you get him dry and right now you're going to see a difference. But you take someone like me, perfect never did anything that I couldn't explain, if I had enough time. <laughs> Devoted my life to my family, to my community, to the Red Cross, to the DAR, to the Navy Relief. Anything to get my hands on, you know. I was very devoted. And tell me I'm sick. How can you be sick and do what I did? Or that I have to change? Well, how would you improve on perfect? And that's what I was. Miserable? You better believe it. I was perfectly miserable. <laughs> Nothing upset me like a good day. <laughs> Haven't you ever had one of those? Where everything's going just the way it's supposed to? And you're sitting there waiting? You go to bed at night and you're absolutely exhausted. Who are you going to tell? Nothing happened. You know, or the telephone. Telephone used to drive me up a wall because the darn thing would ring. And then I'd have to make one of those snap decisions. Shall I answer it? <laughs> and sometimes I was a little longer than usual, and the darn thing would quit. You know how I spent the rest of the day? I wonder who that was. 
The other reason I think the non-alcoholic is sicker is because occasionally Eddie would quit drinking. Not me. I was crazy all the time. Because if he quit drinking, I'd try to figure out what I did to stop him. And while I'm trying to figure out what I stopped him with, he starts. Now I've got to remember not to start him if I ever stop him again. You know, over and over and over. I don't really have time enough to tell you about the dental office I set up, beautiful dental office in Missouri, because, you see, I had decided to help him become a millionaire, but I didn't tell him. You never want to let him know what you're doing with him. Uh, but this was a beautiful dental office. As you, you know, I talked to a friend of my father's in Kansas City into giving me uh, $17,000 worth of dental equipment, and I, I set up this beautiful office. I even had patients, but no dentist. I, uh, well... See, he found a place that uh, to pass away the time while I was doing all this busy work, you know, a bar called Blondie's. And to the best of my recollection, he was only out of that bar and in that office once, and that's when a man came in that I decided to help, so I went down to Blondie's. Now, I don't know how you react to stress, but I want you to know that when I used to get excited, my hair would stand right straight up. And it wasn't so much that my eyes came out, but my skin went back. And... Uh, <laughs> And it gave me kind of a ferocious look, you know, and I would float into those bars like an avenging angel, you know. Scared the hell out of the bartender, too. And I demand that he do what he's supposed to do. And he's not the world's greatest man. In fact, he left when she announced me. Anyhow, I asked him one time, I said, why do you always leave when I get up to talk? And he says, I'm not well enough to go through it twice. <laughs> so, anyhow... Uh, we went back up to that office, walked in, and the first thing that dummy said to him was, Listen, Doc, I'm allergic to Novocaine, but I got my own anesthesia. So he took a bottle out of his pocket. He had a drink. The dentist had a drink. They pulled the tooth, and they both went back to Blondie's. And that's when I made up my mind that that town could suffer. I wouldn't help them. And yet today, as I have been many other days, I'm grateful that drunk as he was, sick as he was, he was more emotionally stable than I was cold sober. Because, see, those people weren't people to me. I didn't really care whether he helped them or not. And I don't think in the final analysis it was my undying love that kept me trying to do something with him. For some reason or other, I had that crazy idea that when he changes, I'm going to be all right. That is not the way it worked for me. See, I, I'm one of those people that was brought up to believe you must be successful spent my life looking for success and I couldn't find it. And one of the reasons is because I didn't know what it was. And I didn't find out until I'd been in Al-Anon for quite a while. And my number one son got drafted and I, I was really in a tizzy, you know, because I didn't want to join the army, but he's a lot like his father. And uh, I kept going to the meetings and I kept talking about it and talking about it, but finally one night my girlfriend, the one with the nasty woman, Anyhow, I uh, I guess she got tired of listening to me because she said to me, Winnie, why don't you get off that kid's back and allow him the dignity of failure? <laughs> I had never heard those two words used in the same sentence before. I didn't know there was a dignity to failure. But she went on to say if he never fails, he can't possibly succeed. Because if he's never experienced one thing, he'll never recognize the other. And do you know since that night, I haven't been to an Al-Anon meeting to an AA meeting, or even to an Alateen meeting, and I'll bet you haven't either, that you haven't watched absolute failure walk through that door, stick around, and become a success. Now, I don't mean from a monetary standpoint, because success to me today doesn't have a price tag on it. It isn't something you invite people over to or drive them around the block in or where to a party. 
Success to me today is the ability to get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and know who I am. Or to stand here right this minute and say, my name is Winnie Eddy, and know who I'm talking about. Because you see, all my life I had a name, but I never had an identity. I was always somebody's wife, somebody's mother, somebody's daughter, somebody's granddaughter, somebody's something. But who am I? I said to her one day, Wilma, how do you find out who you are? And she said, dear, when you have cake for dessert, how do you serve it? See what I mean? <laughs> but I, I used to humor her a good deal, so I said, well, I take a pretty good-sized piece and I give it to Eddie, and then I'm very even with the children, and sometimes there's a little piece left over for me, and sometimes there isn't. She said, that's what I thought, because that's the way you live your life, too. I said, what? She said, you take a big chunk of your life and you give it to him, and then you're very even as far as the children are concerned. And occasionally there's a little piece left over for you, but usually there isn't. I said, well, what do you do in a case like that? She said, it's very simple. You take the first piece of cake. And that's what I try to do, one day at a time, to the best of my ability. Because, you see, I found out the hard way. If I do for you in preference to doing for me, you can bet your life I'm setting you up. And it may take years before I call in that marker, but you'll better believe that someday it's going to be your fault that I didn't do what I wanted to do, try what I wanted to try, be what I thought I could be. Because, you see, left to my own devices, I always fall into that crevice of unworthiness. And it's a long, hard pull back up to where I can admit that I am entitled to as much happiness, to as much success, to anything I have the courage to do without waiting to see whether or not it has your approval. When I left California, I had five children. I have eight altogether. Usually I make you count them as they creep in just like I did because I was always surprised. <laughs> and uh, Eddie was a little shocked, too, when he sobered up. He thought I was babysitting, but that's his... <laughs> that's, uh, that's his story. I try not to get into it. I, um, I will tell you that I probably have the only set of twins on earth that ever had to be explained because, uh, as I say, when I left California, I had five children. I, I knew I was expecting a baby, but uh, when you're busy, and I was, uh, you know, it's not really. I just put that at the bottom of the schedule. And uh, it was getting close to the time, though, so I went to see this doctor in Kansas City. Now, I say this all over the country, so I might as well say it here. Few people realize how happy doctors are. Most of them are just glad you're sick. This one, he was the joy boy of the whole bunch. You know, you should have seen the treatment. He helped me in, sat me down, patted me on the head, and then he hit me with a brick. Mrs. Eddie, you're going to have twins. Well, I almost died in his office because I wasn't really counting on one. He's insisting on two. And I got problems. I got a dental office, no dentist, plus five, and that thing I don't know what to do with. And besides all that, I knew what Eddie was going to say when I told him, because he said it. There are no twins in my family. <laughs> yeah. I got so involved defending my moral character that I forgot there were twins in my family. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until they arrived and my mother said, isn't it nice we have another set of twins? I said, in whose family? She said, why in ours? I said, well, why didn't you tell me? She said, you never asked me. No big deal. I never ask anybody anything. Can you think of a better way for people to find out you don't know something than to ask them? 
Why, even when I used to get lost, you know, I'd pull into the filling station and I would say to the attendant, where are you located? Because <laughs> I knew that if I found out where he was, I'd know where I was. <laughs> and he'd never know I didn't know, see? That was the important thing. And, of course, at the proper time, I went into the hospital. Here again, hospitals are happy places. People are happy to got there. Some are happy. Everybody's happy. And I had been happy once. It hadn't worked out well. So I didn't really want what they had. And as soon as I could, I had a phone put in. If I thought I was going to get happy, I'd just pick up the phone, call the office. Now, I knew Eddie wasn't going to answer that phone. I wasn't even sure he knew I'd put a phone in there. But the point I'm trying to make is I don't need him to make me miserable or you or them out there. All I have to have is a little time to think and wonder, where is he? And who is he with? And what are they doing while I lie here? (laughs) Fifteen minutes, you're having hysterics. And the nurse don't know what happened to you. You know, you haven't even had a visitor. You look like you've been hit by a truck. (laughs) Because I never thought of my husband being out with the boys. Never. Mine was always out with the girls. Those pretty sweet, lovable things you find in them damn dirty bars. You know, the ones that look like me before he did this. <laughs> and then if you like to be right and you're anything like me, find a mirror. And you look like something left over from a bad Halloween party. Because, see, being a martyr is not easy. That is a 24-hour-a-day concentrated effort. But you don't get the look. You know, you got to have circles down to here, preferably with bags. Tear stains that get kind of worn in. And then if you follow the proper procedure, lots of coffee, plenty of cigarettes, and positively no sleep. That's when you get the big one. That's sort of a twitch. (laughs) Well, can you imagine giving up all that for this? That's what I had to do. As I told you in the beginning, it was a letter that my husband wrote that got me to Al-Anon. And today, as I have been many other days, I'm grateful that he cared enough to want to share that very special something he felt he had found in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm also grateful that God sent me a sponsor who had the patience of Job because I wasn't an easy nut to crack. You had to catch me first. And the first afternoon she came to the house, she found the front door nailed shut, which was necessary. I mean, I was just in no shape to cover two doors. And uh, so Wilma went around to the back, and she found the car in the driveway and the coffee pot. Well, oh, you know, she used me, but she couldn't find me. So she went next door, and she asked this little old lady whether or not Mrs. Eddie was at home. And you know what that woman said? Even if she is. <laughs> she thought I was crazy. And I resented that, you know. I mean, uh, once we did almost get trapped in the backyard together, and I hid in the bushes until she went in. So I I just didn't think she had the right to say that. And my kids, they never bothered her. Now, I never forbid my children to go over there. I have always felt that forbidding children to do things leaves scars. So I just used a little psychology. You know, I told them the story of Hansel and Gretel, and I'd make up their own minds, you know. You want to end up in an oven? That's the place. But she scared Wellman. When she came back that night, she had a friend with her, and I don't know how they got in. I used to get my kids to bed on a production basis. You know, everybody in the tub, everybody washed, rinsed out, dried, dressed, in bed so mother can worry. 
And Wilma came between the drying and the dressing process. Lord, I couldn't hide them. I couldn't even catch them. And I had all these little naked bodies running around, but she never even hesitated. She picked up a towel, and she dried, and she talked. Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon family groups. I didn't even know they lived in the neighborhood. But she finally said the magic words, drunks, and I knew why she was there. She needed me. Well, she said she did, and she had a bunch of friends that needed me, too. She was going to get them together, and we were going to have a revival or survival or some kind of a thing. You know, I don't know what it was. What I do know is that when she left that night, whatever came in with her went out with her. I gave her just time enough to get home, and then I called and told her something very important had come up. I would be unable to attend the meeting she was scheduling. Now, I hadn't done anything unimportant for a long time, but I couldn't let her know that. I couldn't let her find out how unimportant I thought I was. And that should have been the first chink in the armor. The first time I should have begun to realize, I never hid from you. I hid from me. Because, you see, a long time ago, I got that crazy idea that I didn't measure up to what I thought you thought I ought to be. And so I built a wall. A wall that was to keep you to find out, keep you from finding out how truly inadequate I thought I was. And the sad part of the story, I'm the one that got lost behind the wall. You see, when I came to Al-Anon, I didn't laugh, I didn't cry, I didn't care. I just knew it had to end, but I wanted it to hurry. But even a defect of character puts you in good stead. You know, I had told this woman I would help her, and I didn't want to be beholding to her. So two weeks later, I went to my first meeting in Azusa, California, and I hope I never forget it. I don't ever want to be an old-timer in this way of life, because I was an old-timer when I got here. But I want to remember what it felt like to walk from a world of absolute chaos into a place of absolute peace, where I didn't have to explain who I was, because who I was was not the important thing. The important thing was that I was there. And for some reason or other, I felt at home in a place I had never been before. But being as sick as I was, I took as much of the free literature as I could take without looking interested. <laughs> I borrowed a book because I didn't want to get financially involved. I went home and I studied. 24 hours, I had memorized the steps, I had memorized the traditions, and I was waiting for the miracle. 24 hours later, I complained. I called and I told Wilma, I said, I don't feel any better. I'm still sitting in the playpen. She said, you are what? I said, I'm still sitting in the playpen. That seemed to astound her. But if you are the mother of eight and you want to read, you haven't got a safer place. <laughs> you don't even have to wonder where the kids are. They're outside watching you. <laughs> and that's when I guess she decided I was uh, in need of further help because she said, Winnie, we don't memorize the steps. We work the steps. That was my first clue as to how sick she was. There's not one word in there that tells you how to work those things. No examination, no nothing. She did make one mistake. She said, we use the same steps in Al-Anon. They use an Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's the way I used them. First one said I was powerless over alcohol, which I'm not, and that my life had become unmanageable, which it wouldn't have been if it hadn't been for him. That must be his, so I left it for him. <laughs> second one had that unfortunate word, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Well, I wasn't crazy. He was. And I figured that was his, so I left that one for him, too. But the third one I skipped for both of us, because that asked me to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. Well, I understood him. He did not understand me. And I didn't really hate Eddie enough, so 
I skipped that one for both of us. But uh, I did notice that whenever I would call my sponsor with little situations, you know, and she'd say, oh, when he just turn it over. But she never said to whom, which I can understand. It's an anonymous program. You don't tell everybody who handles the problems. <laughs> but on this particular day, I had a pretty big one, and I called around the phone. I really just got started when she said, for heaven's sakes, turn it over. I said, don't get so uppity. I'd be happy to. You never told me to whom. Oh, why, she said, I thought you knew. You turn it over to God. I said, no, I don't. I haven't even told him I'm going to Al-Anon yet. <laughs> and I could tell by her tone of voice that this upset her, which I didn't want to upset her, see? And so I began to wonder, what could I turn over to God that he couldn't louse up that would make her happy? And it took me almost three days, and finally I called her, and I said, okay, well, I'm turning something over to God. She said, good. What are you turning over? I said, my ironing. <laughs> she said, your ironing? I said, well, you said it did. Oh, no, 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 no. She said, that's all right. That's all right. And I want you to know God don't like to iron either. <laughs> because I used to keep mine in a cabinet in case I got the urge. I turned it over to him, and it slopped out of the cabinet. It ended up in boxes. The boxes ended up in the rumpus. It was a mess. And every time she'd come over, I'd say, come here, Wilma. I want you to see the ironing. And that's when she gave me routine number one, you know. It's all right. I figured if it don't bother her and it don't bother him, I am not going to let it bother me either. And then one night after an AA meeting, I always got in trouble at those AA meetings. This guy walked up and he says, say, Winnie, you got a bunch of kids, don't you? And I said, well, yes, I was admitting it by then. And uh, he said, well, I go to an orphanage down in Mexico. Those little guys could sure use anything that possibly your kids have outgrown. So I promised him faithfully I would go right home. I would arrange everything. He could just pick it up at his leisure. But I am a procrastinator by profession. He did not follow me home by morning. I forgot he asked me. Now, sometime after that, and I am not sure this span of time, but I came home one night from an Al-Anon meeting, and Eddie said, oh, by the way, Bill was by. He picked up the stuff for the orphanage. <laughs> I said, he did? He says, yeah. I said, where'd you find it? He said, those boxes in the ruckus room. <laughs> now, for those of you who have not put it together, he got my ironing. <laughs> and I want you to know that from that day to this, I have had no problems turning things over to God. Because my God, as I understand him today, has some of the most unique answers. <laughs> I never would have thought of sending them to Mexico. You know? And besides all that, he made me look good. See? Now, I don't tell that story to be blasphemous because I think this whole way of life is spiritual. But by the same token, I don't think God wants to listen to me cry for the rest of my life. I don't think one of the prerequisites of a happy existence is counting the cracks on the sidewalk. You want my honest opinion? I think it kind of gives him a charge to hear me laugh and to know that finally I'm beginning to enjoy this life that he saw fit to give me. So I try to keep a light touch. Now, it don't work 100% of the time, but that's okay. If he louses it up, I forgive him. You know, <laughs> simple as that. A couple of years ago, I went to Germany with my son, Frank, who's very much like me, to visit my son, Arthur, who was stationed over there. He's also like me. They're all like me. 
And uh, we got off the plane in Frankfurt. We couldn't speak the language. We didn't understand. We didn't know where we were. We didn't know where we were. It was a mess. Typical Al-Anon situation. <laughs> First English words we heard. Your luggage is lost. <laughs> well, of course, Frank went right into orbit. You know, he says, what are we going to do? I said, well, we're going to be the first people through customs. <laughs> and we were, you know. And the next day we were in Berlin. The luggage was in Berlin. They even delivered it. So my conclusion was God just didn't want to stop in Frankfurt. That's all. <laughs> now, the point of that whole story is that all the worry in the world would not have brought that luggage back if I wasn't supposed to get it. But what it would do, could do, and has done in my life is rob me of the only gift I have been given that I cannot replace, which is time. You see, every second of every minute of every hour of every day that I spend worrying about things I can do nothing about, I have spent the most precious gift that has been given to me, and I have no way of replacing it. So I try not to worry. But that don't work 100% of the time either. But thanks to you, this way of life and places like this, I have learned to have an awareness which takes me right back to the first step. Where my sponsor in her infinite wisdom, recognizing that I was allergic to the word alcohol, took the word out and put my name in there. And then she said, work it. Today, when I say I'm powerless over Winnie and my life has become unmanageable, I may never get honest enough to tell you all the things that brings to my mind, but that's not the name of the game. The point is, it tells me who louses up my life. And it's not you, it's not him, and it's not them, it's me. Because, you see, I wouldn't allow you to do to me today the things that I have done to myself. Because, you see, I wouldn't let you take away from me the fun that I have with my grandchildren, that in my sickness I gave up because I didn't recognize the priorities in my life. I would like to close with a poem that I use every time I talk and it may mean nothing to you and that's perfectly all right with me. I uh, I don't take credit for anything and that way I don't get blamed either. <laughs> you know, but uh, my sponsor gave this to me at a time in my life my mother was very ill and uh, I just couldn't accept it. And I guess the look on my face told her that there were no words in her vocabulary that were going to bring me up out of this hole that I kept digging myself into. And so she handed me this poem, and the first time I read it, I had a mental picture of my kids that used to come to me with their yo-yo. You know, they'd have the yo-yo clutched in this hand, they'd have it tied to this hand, they'd say, come on, Mom, get the knot out of the middle. And there was no way I could get the knot out of the middle of that string unless they handed me the yo-yo. And that's my shortcut today when I, I don't have time for the whole thing, but anyhow, it goes like this. As children bring their broken toys with tears for us to mend, I took my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But then, instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I sort of hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last, I snatched him back and cried, How can you be so slow? My child, he said, What could I do? You never did let go. So if I don't leave anything else here this weekend as my gift to you, I'll, I hope you'll try to remember just one thing. If you let go and you let God and you let the caring that we're sharing here this weekend be a part of your life one day at a time, you've got the recipe for a good day. Because you see, God loves us in spite of all we think we've done. And we love each other in spite of all we think we've done. 
And I love you because in my wildest dreams, I never could have found the way of life you have so freely given me. Thank you and God bless.